Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Live Booleans. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Alex, how you doing? I'm doing great, Costa. I haven't seen you in so long. I haven't heard that voice. It feels like... Has it been a week already? Feels like it's been way longer, hey? <laughs> feels like it's been five minutes. Yeah. Um, this week, we have the lovely Steve Bromley. Steve is a uh, researcher. Um, he's you researcher in games, games user researcher. He's written a bunch of books. Uh, he's super talented. He's written books called... Uh, building user research teams, which just does a huge deep dive into how to structure a uh, user research team in games. Um, a book, How to Be a Games Research, Games User Researcher, which is a really cool introduction for anyone looking to get into games user research. Uh, he specializes in establishing new user research teams and uh, just doing user research in video games. Uh, he has worked at PlayStation as a senior researcher. Uh, he ran the Games User Research Mentoring Scheme, which has linked over 150 students with more than 50 industry professionals from top game companies such as Sony, EA, Valve, Ubisoft, and Microsoft. And he's just he's just an all-around great guy. <laughs> I really enjoyed having this conversation with him, uh, the one that you're about to listen to. And just so much detail about like putting together the perfect team, uh, how to structure research like a lot of academic rigor there um the challenges that come with conducting research in you know even in vr which uh is an interesting and emerging field as well with research um and just so much yeah he is he, he was a great person to, to chat to and yeah if, if anyone's even you know interested in getting into research uh this one is is a great one and he's got a a new playtest kit that has just come out as well which he talks a little bit about in this podcast as well and it's a great uh, tool set that i've been using personally to help structure research conduct play tests uh and just understand yeah what actually that we're measuring when we when we run these play tests because a lot of us as indie developers we tend to just think oh the best thing that we can do is just put the game in front of someone and and play it but there's there's a lot more to it and you can get a lot more value when you uh learn about these different methods so yeah he's an incredibly he was incredibly uh accommodating with his time and just incredibly down to earth really great person to talk to as you know myself i i don't know much about um ux you're the ux guy um so you know someone like me the way he breaks things down was incredibly accessible um and like you know we've had a few ux people on now and every time they bring a different nugget to it and not it's so much even like a different perspective um because they still tell the same kind of story like there hasn't been anyone who's gone oh no you know what that's not true it's i would do it like this or something like that and it it seems to be because I mean, you probably speak to this. It's it's that, like, you can't kind of argue with, like, I don't know what you call it, the human condition of what to expect with UX. Yeah. Like, we know what works and what doesn't work. Um, and it seems to, like, it's a weird one. Actually, what do you think about this? Is it, do you think that the player instinctively knows UX and it's the game developer that has to catch up because in almost every other aspect, like the programming or the 
even the art, it's still up to the, um, the player. But the UX, it's a funny one, right? Because you're doing it to please the player. So it's like the player is the expert. Mm, we, we I think we touch base. We touch, we touch on this in the podcast, but it's around like the game designer is trying to make a certain kind of game. And when we run play tests, when we run research, we, we try to see if the player experience is uh, in line with what the designer wants the experience to be. You know, because you structure a game in a certain way, uh, you know, you set up certain rules and it creates certain dynamics, it creates certain um, experiences for the player. But ultimately, as researchers, you want to see if that experience uh, matches what the designer is intending the experience to be or if it's off or there's changes that need to be made. Um, yeah, and I think Steve Steve does go, th- go through this and in his books, he definitely goes into all of these different concepts. Um but yeah, it's it's an emerging. I feel like it's an emerging field. You know, we've we there's just so much that we can do in this in this space to improve ex- players' experiences across across a bunch of different games and across a bunch of different um, new you know mediums like VR as well. So mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, and uh, if you're a long-time listener, <laughs> we are on Spotify. We're on every platform. Please leave us a review or a comment. I'm begging if you, you. I'm begging you. <laughs> no. Um, if, if you enjoy us, yeah, it, it'd really help us if you left a review. Uh, even, Five yeah, wrote us a comment. Send us an email, even. We, we have an email address, liveboolianspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we want to hear, hear from you. We want to hear what you think about the podcast. Um and yeah, share it with your friends. That's that's the least, you know, that's the kind of the, the best thing you could do for us um, to help spread the word and get Booleans out there to a bunch more people. Yeah. All right. John Q, the podcast. <laughs> Enjoy. Cool. Well, thank you for coming on, Steve. Uh, thank you very much for having me, Steve. Really excited to be here. So we always like to uh, open up with our guests of just uh, where you began your journey in in games. So obviously you're, you're a games user researcher. How did you get involved in games uh, specifically? Yeah, so I guess I always grew up interested in games as, as we all did, right? Um, playing Nintendo. I uh, worked on a mod for Quake when I was in high school um, for the first Quake game. So I was always kind of interested in it. But then I, I didn't know games user research was a career or even what user research was or how game development really worked until I just happened upon it at university. I went to Sussex University. I was studying a usability-related course. And one of the lecturers there, uh, Dr. Graham McAllister, he had set up a, a user research lab for games called Vertical Slice. I think that was one of the first companies in the world that did that type of thing. It's very new at, at the time. And just by seeing what that was and, and what he did, and he explained, hey, this is, you can do usability testing on games, you can do user research on games. Um, it became clear that, hey, this is a real job. People really do it. It has a real impact on game development. Um, and, and that set my course, I think. Um, after that, I just tried to get experience wherever I could. I was approaching indie developers and saying, hey, can I do usability reviews in your game and, and spotting issues with your game? Um, I was very lucky that at, through the university, 
I could link up with a Relentless Software. We made, I don't know if you're familiar with the game Buzz. It was a quiz mm. game that has um, things, yeah. yeah. Um, we could do a project with them. And then all of that uh, experience meant that as soon as I left university, I, I applied for a job at PlayStation and as a user researcher. And then I was away. So I think of luck stumbling upon it as a career. Mm. And then as soon as I, <coughs> I'd heard it existed, I thought, yeah, this is what I have to do. I have to do this. And and what and what is a games user research for? Like, because we have a lot of indie developers that listen, but some of them, they've heard of playtesting, they've heard of you know maybe a little bit of usability testing, um, but yeah, what what is it in terms of like if you were to define it, how would that be defined? Yeah, I, I guess it's really helpful in games that people do have that history of playtesting and they're somewhat familiar with playtesting. Um, how I describe games user research is it's very structured playtesting using all the best practice from science and from UX and, and from other research methodologies. What that looks like in real life is working very closely with game designers and game teams to understand the vision of their game mm. and what they expect players to understand, how they think the game's going to be balanced, and then putting that in front of players, whether it's watching players play and notice what they don't understand, whether it's uh, surveys, whether it's telemetry from the game reporting how many times players fail or where they fail, and then again working with the design teams to help check that the game is being experienced in the way in which they want. Mm. One of the things we have to explain, I think people get a bit cautious about game user research or a bit unsure about, is the idea that it's changing the vision of the game. I think they've got in their mind that vision of market research where you, you have a focus group and you have a whole bunch of players and you say, do you, what do you like about games this year? And they say, hey, I love skateboarding games. I love games with blue hedgehogs in. And then game teams get told, hey, you've got to make a Sonic game about skateboarding. That's not what we do at all. Like, uh, we try and we start with that designer vision and then we just make sure that players are understanding that vision that you as a designer have. Mm. So it's that kind of alignment of, of, of validating what the designer uh, intends the experience to be uh, exactly that it's really hard as a game developer because you're working on that on that game for months or for years you forget or you lose that ability to see what a new player understands and what a new player mm. takes from the game and so it just allows you to ha have that new player experience and see actually do players get what I'm trying to think I'm doing here which is nice yeah and you've and you've written a bunch of books on this. Like you wrote, "How to Be a Games User Researcher," um, uh, building user research teams, and now you've recently recently released your um, playtest kit. What was your like motivation for for writing those books? Out was it? Did you see like a lack of structure or a lack of kind of method out there? Yeah, particularly with. Um, I'll talk about how to be a games user researcher first, which is telling people how to start doing this as a full time career. Uh, I used to run the mentoring scheme, the IGDA's mentoring scheme for games mm -hmm. user research. And mm -hmm. um, really after about five years of it and talking to the men other mentors and listening to the questions mentees had, it, it was the same themes again and again. People wanted to know what is games development really like and where can you have an impact on, on games with these types of studies? Actually, how do you go about running a, a study and what does a, a structured playtest look like? And then how do you get your first job? How do you navigate interviews? And how do you um, have a, a portfolio that people pay attention to? And so I thought, well, rather than doing these in one-by-one -one conversations every every couple of weeks, we could wrap all of this up in, mm. in, in a book, which is really nice. 
Um, I guess the inspiration between the playtest kit is this this thing I've been talking about, games user research, is, is great for studios that can afford people to do it full-time, but I, there's 99% of the studios don't have that type of budget, right? They can't hire someone to exclusively do games user research. Games user research agencies exist, but again, they're quite expensive. Mm. And when uh, what games studios have the time or the money to do, go and do that type of thing? What I was hoping to achieve with Playtest Kit is take all of that best practice that if you got a, a full-time games user researcher, they, they would know, and then make that accessible to, to everyone else. If, you're, if your job is just being a, a game designer or you're a community manager or you do UX or any of these things, and you have to do a bit of playtesting, but it's not your full-time role, or, or you want to do playtesting, but you don't have time, you're trying to make that accessible to people. Mm. which I, I think is a really interesting challenge. I think it's a way to have a huge amount of impact with user research. So one I'm quite interested in exploring. And that's 100% the way I, I've used it because I, I'm a UX designer, but I, I do want to push into playtesting um, at the company that, that I'm at. So I've very much used it in that way. So I've, I've found it very useful. Um, and, and I was almost using your book, you know, How to Be a Games User Researcher as that, uh, toolkit before it existed so I would go there and I'd look at you know the templates that you provided and that kind of stuff to, to help structure it so I'm very much getting um, some you know great use out of that uh, have you seen you know what kind of feedback have you seen from from uh, beginners coming into it or even ex- other experienced researchers yeah I, I think it's been good so far I guess especially as you mentioned the the book uh, I think people have found that very helpful. There's definitely a lack of information about what the job really is or how to get mm. the, the job. Partly that's because a lot of the big studios where you can do this as a role are very heavy with their NDAs and you can't speak mm. about really what you're doing, you can't pull out case studies that easy, easily. So it's a bit abstract or, or hidden what the, the job really is. There are some really good resources out there. I don't know if you're familiar with the Games Research and UX Special Interest Group. Mm. They they run conferences, they have a Discord. It's a fantastic community to get that kind of information. Mm-hmm. But again, I think there's still a gap for this this type of thing. Similarly with the playtest kit, I think there's a, a real need for for better playtesting. I mm. again when you go on game dev forums, a lot of people are just asking those questions about where do I get playtesters from? Yep. Um, what do I do when I've got them? And, and I think some of those questions are, are some of the ways we can help. Yeah, a lot of the questions I get is just, or, or kind of the, the commentary is just, just put the game in front of anyone and see what they do. And it's like, oh, okay, there's probably a better way of doing it than just doing that. I, um, I mean, that's doing nothing, but it, yeah, you yeah, can build. that's right. What have you seen? What are the, what are the patterns in terms of how people typically do it? Um, or, you know, it's maybe inexperienced people might conduct play tests or research. Um, or, you know, especially now that you, you consult for other companies, how, how is that uh, expectation or what's, what's the current state when you go into these companies and, you know, they've, they've hired you to come on board and, and help out? Yeah, so usually what I see is... Uh, decisions made up based on convenience, which obviously you can understand because people don't have a huge amount of time and it's just an add-on to their job. That involves things like recruiting from, so recruiting people to take take part in playtests from local universities, game dev courses, from you've got an existing community of fans on your Discord and, and using that. 
from there are some Reddit forums uh, for game testing and and like game developers testing each other's games, mm-hmm. and so a lot of recruitment from those areas. As uh, as you know, as someone who works in UX, uh, there's a risk of sampling bias. What that means is you're getting people who aren't really like your real players. And I heard some horror stories from from game developers where hey, they got loads of great feedback from those groups. They tuned their game based on that. And then they completely lost any new players because they made the game much too difficult because they were tuning for this this hardcore audience who are not the same mm-hmm. as their real players. Um, so one of the first things we like to do with the teams is explore how do you actually access people who are more like your real players and how do you bring them in for playtesting. And another one of those decisions that they make based on convenience is what do you do when you've got those playtesters? And again, I was seeing time and time again that Game developers send out a build and say, "Go play the game for a bit, and then just stick some some feedback in our Discord and and tell us what you think about it." That's again convenient. It's easy to organise, mm. and because the playtesters aren't that committed, often it's easy to get them to write some words on Discord. But it's not structured. It's not answering any research objectives you have. And again, one of the things that we can do is, as full-time UX people and user researchers is help teams think about actually what do I need to know at this time? What is my research objective? What game design questions do I have? What data do I need to see to answer that game design question? And then from that decide the method. Yes, it could be um, survey, it could be watching players play, it could be, as we talked about, telemetry in the game. Um, Yeah, making sure that we're making our method decisions based on what we want to learn rather than just what's Mm -hmm. convenient. I think those are two of the first first things that teams often go wrong with. It's interesting that you mentioned that, like it's out of convenience. This this aspect of just dumping data into uh, Discord, but your initial thoughts are just like that's that's a mess. Like to try to sift through that, and you know, and it's once you're aware of the kind of the more structured process that you realise how uh, inefficient that can be to really you know target and pinpoint um, you know feedback on on specific areas that you're looking at. So. Yeah, it's 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 good that you know you're kind of going in and, and helping people uh, with the structure as well with that. Um, what are, what are some uh, kind of you know you you, you worked at at Sony um, for for quite a while. Um, what were the big challenges with uh, working in you know such a a big organization like that? Like, would, were you part of a, a research team there or was it? Yeah, um, that's a fun question. Um, so yes, we were, we're part of the research team, which has pros and cons. What's really nice about PlayStation is because they're a publisher, you just get exposed to a huge amount of variety of games. So for example, they have an ex-dev team who fund very small studios to do very small games. And from that, you would be testing a game that by the team making it are only about five to 10 people. And you can see the huge impact that a single research study can have for such a small team. Uh, but also because it is PlayStation, they obviously fund much bigger games. One of the ones that I was lucky enough to work on was Horizon. And mm. that's the opposite, where there's hundreds of people working on it. And a single research study has, yeah, won't have that same impact because it's just a, a small drop in the ocean compared to all the other thoughts and, and conflicting priorities for such a big game. Um, so it was nice for a learning opportunity for me to be exposed to all those teams and all uh, the different challenges from different teams. I guess a challenge you have at any 
publisher or any any uh, agency and any research team that works in those methods is we're not embedded with the teams we because we're our team is our research team we can go and run a study which involves asking the team about their current priorities um, running that study and then telling them the answer but because you're not sat with that team every day it creates some limits in, in the impact you can have as a researcher for one thing you have to wait until a team approaches you or you have to be very proactive about approaching them. That requires a level of experience from the game teams to know, is this a good time to ask for user research? And probably they're missing tens of opportunities where they could have asked research questions and could have run a study mm. they just didn't know about. And you see it on the other side of the research study as well, where after you've run your study and you've presented some findings or run a workshop to get them to think about what they've learned, you then walk away and go and work on another project, leaving that team to, to mm. interpret and to action it. Whereas actually, if you stick around, if you're embedded inside a team, you can help make sure that research continues to have an impact and, and changes mm. their decisions. Um, so yeah, pros and cons, I think. Yeah, and that's that's kind of the the piece there, isn't it? It's around um, communication of, of those results and then almost the education component of... Um, you know, educating that team to understand uh, when they could do research and then how they can uh, utilize that research to actually improve on the on the game as well. And yeah, yeah has that? How, how is it that you've gone? Like, have you? You've obviously seen challenges like that where you've uh, done a research study and then tr- tried to kind of how do you communicate that across to you know your your large like when it's a huge large organization how do you make sure that that gets implemented when when you are you know passing on to another going on to another project straight after yeah that really is the hard bit of the job i think i think when you look at what a user researcher does you assume hey it's running the studies and, and writing the report and that but actually as i think in my own career as a grown in seniority i've seen that's that's important but the relationship with the team is the important bit too. Mm. Um, so yeah, there's some immediate things you can do to try and make research findings land. Rather than just writing a report and presenting a report, you can run activities to make sure the team understand and, and uh, incorporate that into their thinking. The, I guess the easiest version and something we did a lot of at PlayStation was after debriefing those findings, we'd then run a session where we go back to look at the biggest problems and just facilitate that discussion between the different disciplines mm-hmm. about what can we going to do about this? What are the options available to us? So involving sound designers, art designers, level designers, producers, because they've got a good view of what's feasible in the timeline, and just being the person who lets them have that conversation, captures mm-hmm. that captures the options, helps them evaluate the best options and, and helps them decide how to move forwards. I think that's part of our, our role as well. And then if you are lucky enough to spend long with the team, it becomes just a lot less structured. Regular mm. check-ins with the producers, regular check-ins with the game designers to just ask them, hey, what happened as a result of that study? Do you need any more information? Did you understand it? Anything, anything else from that? Ultimately, it does take a huge amount of time there's a really nice GDC talk by uh, John Hobson, who was at Bungie at the time, mm-hmm. and he talked about his experience testing on uh, Halo and, and then Destiny, and he's got a nice graph on 
showing that on Halo 2, they did a couple of rounds of research right at the end. Halo 3, they um, brought it back a bit, so it was like a year or two before development, and they did more rounds of research. And then by the time they got to Destiny, it was four years worth of research before launch with lots of studies mm. all the way through. And I think that really shows the progression that we have to do with our game teams. It, it's not a quick change. It's a, a long-term relationship that we have to build to, to educate, as you said. Mm. And in thinking of the opposite, like when, when you're at Sony, you mentioned you did uh, companies that were really small and really big. What was the really small companies like and what was that relationship of uh, conducting research with, with their products? Yeah, I think that's really nice. And um, again, something that with the work we've been doing on Playtest Kit, it's been nice to explore the environment for those teams uh, a lot more. Because as I mentioned, they are, they are very small. I think any sort of opportunity to see real players playing their game is super exciting because they don't have the capacity to arrange this themselves. Sometimes the enthusiasm can be a, a bit of a risk. Uh, as a researcher, we recognise you can't just watch a single person play the game and then assume you've understood everything and then jump straight to making actions. Um, as you know, we'll go through let's see multiple people, let's look for patterns, let's analyse what we're seeing and draw conclusions. So sometimes you do have to put in the reins a bit so that people don't just jump straight to action. But again, I think because of the, the enthusiasm of those teams, because they are small, they have a lot more control over decision-making that you can make reasonably radical changes based on a single playtest. It's, it's a really nice environment. So yeah, I, I really like working with those teams too. Yeah, and that's that's that kind of um, yeah. When when it's a small team, you've just got yep. I've seen one person play this. That's an issue. I'm gonna just quickly change the code now, and it's gonna be it's gonna be better now. Yes. Yeah. Quite Which dangerous. Is, yeah. Yeah. There's a place for rapid iterative testing. Yeah. But yeah, doing it knowingly and consciously is important. Yeah. And and you worked. Um, was it the lead on on PlayStation VR as well? Uh, doing uh, sorry research. Uh, leading research on that as well? Um, yes, so I wasn't the only lead. There, there were quite a few leads, yep. but um, some of the things I worked on included the actual headset itself, mm -hmm. and then I, I was the sole lead for many of their, their launch games. So uh, I didn't play much of PlayStation VR, but it had uh, PlayStation VR Worlds was one of the things mm -hmm. that came out with it, which is a variety of different VR experiences. Um, that was London Studio, who was in the same mm -hmm. office as us. And, and that was really interesting too. Right? Um, we could talk a bit about the challenges of VR, if that's helpful. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I wanted to j jump into. Was like, what's the what are the challenges of um, playtesting in VR? I know you did a, you did an article around uh, minimizing sickness in mm -hmm. VR. Obviously, that's a big challenge. Um, any other challenges, both with VR itself, but also uh, conducting testing on hardware? Yeah. Um, I guess two things jump out to me. There's logistical challenges actually running playtests in VR. Some of the issues that we hit into very early on that we didn't anticipate, but I guess are obvious these days now, commercial VR headsets are a lot more more um, applicable, is we had a very traditional playtest lab, which has a, a one-way mirror, and we'll have the game team stack behind the one-way mirror. One-way mirrors don't work with VR because it bounces the infrared signals off the mirror. <laughs> And then it just throws the tracking and the, the, it doesn't work at all. And again, it's just hitting those technical roadblocks for the first time that you don't know about. You would, 
you wouldn't even think about that that's as, as an issue until you kind of run into or at, le- at least if you knew that how the technology worked i was thinking you wouldn't even if they're in the vr set they're not even going to know you're there you don't even need the mirror that's true yeah what's the point of the mirror that's all um there's other silly things like that like again a very traditional playtest room looks like a living room where you've got settees and you've got a um a coffee table people are going to walk into that coffee table because they're in a vr headset and in their living room they probably know there's a coffee table there but if you brought them to your playtest lab they don't they won't remember the setup of the room they're going to walk into the table um some of our tests have office in some of our rooms you had office chairs the ones that spin again um people will stand up the chair will spin they got a headset on because they don't know and then they'll just fall on the floor again <laughs> you realize okay i can't have office chairs and, and another challenge is, as a user researcher, sometimes you want to ask questions to people, right? You want to ask, why did you do that, or, or what yeah. happened? If someone's wearing headphones and a VR headset, they don't know you're asking questions. You're just talking to someone who can't see or hear you. Yeah. And so we had to look at hardware ways of how do we make our voice come over their headphones rather than just trying to talk to them in the room. Um, so those are, I guess, some interesting challenges about the actual logistics of testing VR. As a researcher, it also just had interesting research questions. When we were working on PlayStation VR, it was before the Oculus was out. I think the dev kits were out, but it wasn't the commercial one wasn't out. It was before the, the Vive was out. There weren't other commercial VR headsets out there. Mm. And because of that, players don't have a lang- didn't have a language for how do you do common game interactions? How do mm. you move in a VR environment? How do you indicate what we can interact with or pick up or, or do? These are, are questions that for other games, it's widely established, hey, we move using the thumbsticks or mm. things have a highlight if you're gonna going to interact with them. But that kind of language just didn't exist for VR. And, and that's a really nice research objective to work with game teams mm. to answer. That's kind of nice blue sky. You know, you can yeah. do any interaction you want, but it's also a a very difficult thing because I'm guessing you had to test a lot of different variations to understand what works and what doesn't work and yeah yeah exactly I don't know if, how much you played VR games but that idea of moving in VR was yeah. a big question all the time because mm-hmm. again no one had learned any conventions for it so it wasn't established as how we move in VR um, there's risk of motion sickness as you mentioned mm-hmm. if you do it wrong and so, yeah, lots of variations and lots of exploration on how do we actually get people to be able to walk around in a VR environment without hitting the coffee table. And yeah, and it sounds like a lot of them were um, environment or kind of uh, physical space issues uh, as well. Have you, do you think we've come to a spot now where we've got some common interactions for VR? I mean, I, I've, I've got an Oculus, well, I used to have an Oculus Quest too, um, and there's some, like, it seems quite refined. Do you feel like there's still some shortcomings in VR that we could like kind of iron out? Yeah, to be honest, I haven't played much of the the last couple of years worth of VR games, mm. so I don't have a, a strong answer. I guess what I can see from the community is at the time that um, the PlayStation VR work was coming out and those first launch games were coming out, I saw a lot of talks in our in our user research conferences about the these conventions and these interactions mm. and how to do it. And I see that those have died down now. So my assumption is it's getting closer to being solved. But yeah, I mm. can't confidently say that. It's been a little mm-hmm. while since I, 
I only play yeah. games on Switch these days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I've seen UX has just UX in general. I think has become like so popular as of late, like in in video games. I think there's just there's like so many more jobs. I think opening up in in the space. Um, why do you why do you think that is? Like, if from your opinion, do you think people have been just do you think there's just been games that have come out that are just really bad or they've missed the mark in some point that um, that people have wanted to hire more researchers or more designers? Uh, that's that's a good point. I um, I don't have a I don't have the answer, but I've got some theories. So I'll talk about some mm. theories. Yeah, yeah. Let's hear it. Um, I guess in, in general tech, there's been a lot more recognition of the value of UX and, and user research because uh, it can be a, a USP or key key differentiator that, hey, this app is easy to use. Mm. And especially because through apps and, and websites are often free now as a basis, um, it being easy to use or easy to understand is essentially very important for the success of, of that product. And then I see a lot of that thinking, I guess, has translated to games, possibly via the medium of mobile games, where they, they're often teams who have worked in, in other tech and other apps. They've worked with UX designers and worked with user researchers, and they, they're taking that experience from outside of games and applying it to games. And again, with the popularity of, of free-to-play, those experience, the experience of the game is incredibly important because... Like the value, how you make money is by keeping people hooked and keeping people mm. playing, and that takes that understanding of psychology and, and usability and, and how people play to do effectively, which I guess is different from the olden days where you're trying to sell a box experience mainly, and um, once they've bought it, you don't care if they understand it or, or like it. It's just like on re- that read instruction manual and, and get on with it. Yeah, <laughs> on that. Do you reckon? Um, the, the like continual rise of social media has impacted it as well. Like, um, you know, back in the day, if Nintendo releases a game and they have images instead of text, you know, or something, and it's blurry, there's not a social media for people to jump on and be like, make them trend. They go, this game's horrible or something like that. There's more of a push to appease the user and the user experience. I think that's a really good point that because game game fans are super vocal they talk a lot about their experience of it and they as you say on social media they have channels to do this it is very important to make sure that players are having a positive experience and you can't get away with releasing something that that is bad because at least for that hardcore community of, of gamers who are often trendsetters about um what's popular by act- actively following the industry they're going to be aware and share that share that knowledge. It's not it's not perfect. I guess you can see that marketing still had a huge effect on the success of a game, and, and marketing is very important. But yeah, there's that balance between how well it's marketed and also actually is it a good game that players enjoy at the end of the day that does impact this. You're right. And it's interesting, like it, um, you know, the marketing. If the marketing, is, it's almost like a scale. If the marketing is too hot, like it's you know quite overhyped, and then the the interaction is quite low in quality, you get these really bad reviews because it's been you know overhyped essentially. So yeah, it's an interesting dynamic between the two. Yeah, and it's difficult to recover from things like that, right? Um, I guess an example being No Man's Sky, where it was very yeah. remarketed, 
actually the game on launch wasn't what players expected or had been promised. And it feels like they have brought it back. They've worked really hard over, over many years and iterating on it to make the experience that players initially expected. But many game teams don't have that that freedom or that time or, or the the money to go and fix that. And so they're stuck with an underwhelming game at launch. And and do you see um, when you were at Sony? Obviously, you worked on heaps of uh, on games, heaps of games as well. Did you see the like what what varied the the type of research that you did? Was it was it the objectives that the designers had, or was it also like the the type of game? Obviously, you know, VR has its own type of way of conducting research. But um, yeah, with other games, was it yeah? What what kind of dictates the the type of research? That's a good point. I, I guess. It is the objectives that the team have, but that's largely informed by how far through development it is. Mm-hmm. So early on, when they're they're white boxing or grey boxing, the core mechanics and they're exploring is this fun and, and where the core loop is. You might do a lot of one to one testing where we're sat with a player, we watch them play very closely, we ask them questions as they play, and, and do that type of one to one study. Later on in development their objectives are usually become more about balance or quantity or, or difficulty in working through those. And, and those become quant question, uh, quantitative questions once we need to count things. Um, at many playtest labs, like at Sony's, they have lots of gaming pods set up. I, I've seen some gaming lab, labs that have 40 or 80 gaming pods where they have 80 players playing at the same time. And that means well. you can start to answer those quant questions. You can see how long does it take people to get through a, a level on average, how many times do people fail on each level on average, what do they rate this mission on average, and you can start to do those balance questions, um, which is usually later in development. Mm-hmm. So, it's a, so it's a bunch of factors, I guess, that, that play into that. Yeah, yes. I, yeah, their objectives are usually how far through development it will inform that, I think. Yeah, yeah. And, and have you seen, uh, like because of COVID, obviously we've had to kind of shift everything remote. What have, have you had, have you kind of dealt with a lot of those challenges of, of remote play testing? Obviously certainly you have the, the labs there, but um, how do you reach audiences outside of that? Have you, have you kind of overcome those challenges yourself? Um, yeah, it's been a really interesting topic. So traditionally a lot of games user research was in person, much more so than other sorts of tech. There's a number of reasons that, because it is a vocal community, as we've talked about, teams are very worried about leaks. They don't want people to take a photo of what's happening in the game or to post it on Reddit or something like that. And because of that, a lot of our studies were lab-based. We'd bring them to us, we'd make them lock their phones away, mm-hmm. we would um, watch them as we play, as they play, and we'd make sure they could take no evidence of what they'd seen. That means that remote methods like people playing at home or yeah, people playing at home primarily, was weren't popular and weren't really part of our repertoire. Obviously because of COVID, that has had to change. Um, and I guess I've seen, from the game teams that I talked to, I've seen a couple of ways to, to deal with this. Some have become more okay with, with that risk of leaks. There are a number of techniques that we can do, such as watermarking builds, mm-hmm using tools like Parsec so that they don't actually have the build, they're streaming the build from from us. Um, 
yeah, making sure they sign NDAs, I guess would be typical, to mm-hmm. try and minimise that risk of people leaking the game when when they have a copy in the wild. Obviously, that's not perfect, and not every game studio is in a position where they can do that type of thing. So I guess, I guess another approach that game studios have looked at is just de-scoping their research during COVID, so doing things like usability reviews where they'll get um, user user researchers, UX people to play the game and notice some issues that they think the players would have, or running playtests with internal staff or, or playtesters, uh, which is, as we talked about right at the beginning, again, not great because of sampling bias, they're not really your players, but trying to find those compromises. I, what do I think overall? I think it has forced us to adapt and forced us to learn these new new methods and try to apply it, which is really good as game studios have come to embrace that. Mm. And I guess we're still on that journey, though. We still need to make the case for the biggest studios and the biggest games, this is safe and it won't go on Reddit to play tests with us. Yeah, that's right. It's such a a tricky um, challenge challenge and, and especially... Um, yeah, because people can can just take a photo, leak it, or you know, even just just leak the build um, directly. And and I wonder, I hope it doesn't hasn't had an impact on uh, games in development in regards to not conducting research in such an early stage because they're kind of wary of it leaking out and just waiting until it's like almost polished and then and then doing it. Like that's going to be so difficult. That definitely happens. Teams are definitely very worried, and I, I think. Again, maybe like we talked about with Halo, it's a thing that you have to build trust over time. They need to trust mm. that it's going to be okay and you're going to handle this and, and it it won't leak. And then once you can show that on, on the first game in the series, they'll trust you a bit more to so a bit early on the second game and, and so on. Mm. And like obviously that's that's a, a huge challenge is kind of remote um, testing. Are there any other areas where you think we still fall short in, in user research for games? Something I see that's done very well outside of games is the value of discovery research. Um, discovery research is, so rather than you've got a thing and you're testing it, which is what we've been talking about today, we're testing this game we've got, it's understanding users before you make the thing mm. um, to inform your game design decision. And, and I guess that's obvious how it applies outside of games before I was going, if I was going to make um, Uber for the first time and Uber didn't exist, I would want to understand how do people order taxis currently, what's hard about that, and from that, what what are the opportunities, what features does it need to do, and, and how does it need to work? Is it kind of like ethnographic research to some extent, or just that yeah. kind of pre, you don't have a product, but you're looking at problems that, that people have? Yeah, yeah, exactly that. I, I, identifying problems people have and the context in which they they have these problems. Um, games doesn't really do that. I, I guess one of the the common reasons described is because games aren't really solving problems in mm. the same way. They're, they're entertainment, they're a leisure thing. I I still think there's something here. I think if we spent more time understanding the context in which people play, how they decide mm. what to play and how that game is meeting those needs or the bits where the game isn't meeting needs, there, there's a lot of work that can be done there. I guess two things that immediately jump out to me is for mobile gaming, for example, I guess mobile game teams know this already, but a lot of mobile gaming is done on the move. It's 
you're traveling, you probably don't have your headphones in, you, you might only have two minutes while you're waiting at a doctor's surgery to be called in, so you need to interrupt at any point. And understand more about that mm. situation in which people are playing mobile games would inform the game design decisions. What, mm-hmm. what are you actually going to make for that player? I need to understand where they're going to play it. And I'm, I imagine there's more things like that. Thinking about my own experience, I, as I mentioned earlier, I play a lot of games on the Switch now, and it's because I can pick it up and put it down at any any time, and I it, instant suspend, instant resume. Mm. And again, I think if I understood more players and more context, it would help inform hardware and game design decisions. Does that does that? So now you you mentioned you mentioned playing on Switch. Does that influence then the types of games you play on Switch as well? In terms of like, is it shorter like games that have a shorter play session, or is is it just the the fact that you can resume and 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 stop at any time? Yeah, from a hardware perspective, I guess because that's handled at the hardware and it is an instant resume, mm. it, it doesn't matter that much the type of game because mm. I. I I don't need to wait for a breakpoint. I can stop immediately where I am. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Although, again, thinking about my own context, I often don't play with headphones, and so that does have a big impact on the type of game. I've tried... Mm. You've seen that Portal's just uh, about to be re-released in Switch, and I love Portal, probably want to replay it, but then I'm thinking, oh, I won't have sound, and is it the right game to play without sound? Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, it does have... The context is impacting my decision on what to play. Yeah, that's that's quite an interesting one. Just having that market, well, not yeah, market research or kind of customer research before you actually start looking at the type of game and, and how that influences it. That's quite yeah. That's it. Quite spans across the platform, across the type of game, the game design, all this sort of stuff. And there is some work in this space already because you might have seen uh, a person called Nikki from Quantic Foundry. They talk about player motivations. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And- yep. And that's that's relevant. Like, why why are people playing games, and why do they pick the genre they pick? But I don't know if that's exactly the same as this behavioural research mm. that I think isn't being done about actually where are you? Um, and I guess also I to, we talked earlier about how this isn't market research, and we don't mm. want to change game design decisions, mm. but be very careful not to step into that territory because mm-hmm. game designers they're experts at what they do. They, they know how to design games. I have to be very careful not to start accidentally designing games as a user researcher. Mm. So maybe- I remember hearing that um, uh, when Nintendo launched uh, Super Mario Odyssey, because that was like a launch title for the Switch, they developed, part of that was developed for that exact reason, um, people on the bus. So, you know, traditional Mario games, you had the star and it was, you know, a 20 minute ordeal to collect. Mm. Um, there'd be 120 in a game then they moved it to what is it like a thousand and some are just just jump to that top of that building and you'll get it um, and they were like it'll be a quick win for that person on the bus who hasn't got 20 minutes to do it that's really nice that's really nice how they were aware of how people are going to play it and, and made the game respond to that that's fantastic yeah. yeah I think it's also a cultural it might be a cultural thing I think I remember saying about that because public transport is such a huge thing in Japan it's like on the forefront of their design. Yeah, and, and cultural differences are quite interesting as well, aren't they, with these things. You might remember the Microsoft Connect, where mm. it was the motion control thing. And, and obviously it's designed in America and made for American living rooms, which is very big. And that I, I think there were loads of stories when it came out that actually you can't play it in a living room in the UK. I, um, you can't play it in, in Japan. 
because people's rooms aren't big enough and the game is just yeah. made for a bigger space than yeah. you, it tells you put your hand out here and you physically can't put your hand out here yes yeah <laughs> yeah we we had a um uh, developer, uh, a programmer who worked on a basketball game for Connect, where you would physically bounce a basketball. And I think he mentioned there was quite a lot of issues when they were play testing um, in other uh, countries and and other living rooms where it was like really small. And you know, because obviously the game was developed, I think in Canada, you know, America. So it was, yeah, quite a different experience to, to other people. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely something to be aware of as as you're making these design decisions. Yeah, definitely. Um, what what are some exciting things you're working on on lately? What what can you talk about? What oh, what can't yeah. you talk about? Um, so plenty that I can't talk about. Obviously, teams always need help running playtesting. A lot of what I do is talking to them about to not just running playtests, but embedding the ability to do playtests yourself and and run better user research and start getting thinking about user research, uh, which is really nice. I think. I've seen a huge amount of interest in that over the last year. So it's really nice that game teams are increasingly aware <clears throat> they should be doing this type of thing. Um, I, I guess something to talk about is, uh, as you mentioned, I recently released a playtest kit, which tries to help teams who can't afford professional user research support to do this type of thing. I think there's a huge amount of potential in, in that area and a lot more we can be doing to helping the, those groups. So I, I think some of the things I want to do soon are more interviews with game designers and developers to understand more about their process, their priorities, and how this fits in, and the barriers to playtesting, and then trying to work out what are the solutions. Obviously, the playtest kit is part of a, a solution, but are there more unmet needs for game designers who want to do playtesting that are stopping them playtest? So I'll probably be talking much more about, about that subject over the next year as well. Very interesting. And have there been, I mean, you mentioned that you're going to talk to um, designers and developers. Are there things that, the issues, I wonder if uh, that tie into the, the tools like into Unity and Unreal and that kind of stuff, if there's anything that can, you know, be facilitated there. I don't know. I, I'm just, it's just me <laughs> saying things, but yeah. Um, I've definitely heard that. I, I had a great conversation with a UX designer who said one of the barriers is that lack of, ability to rapidly prototype based on um, well game mechanics. So for example, uh, doing a, a swipe mechanic is really hard to rapidly prototype. Um, whereas if you look at tech, there are rapid prototyping tools. You can do things like Figma or Marvel or those type of things. And so there's definitely a, a potential there to find how do we prototype game design mechanics and how do we make that easier so that we can put those in front of players earlier. Um, I think that's a huge problem, though, and probably well outside of my my capability to answer. But I think it's a good topic to explore. Yeah. Has there been, um, you just made me think, has there been much of a uh, argument or a case in the UX world for AI to do that testing? And listening to everything you've been saying about also how hard it is to get people to test remotely. And then, you know, there was that thing someone did recently about teaching a game to play hide and seek with each other, the two AIs, and that it just played it for thousands and thousands of hours and just rack them up and get better and better. Is Has that been popping up, like the ability for AI to do some uh, game testing? Yeah, I, I've seen academic papers on it. So, for example, um, uh, Pejman, Merze, 
Babay, I think I've said his name correct, at the University of Ontario. I've seen that his department have been doing work on AI playtesting to get people through it and work out where problems are, or let virtual people through it and work out where problems are. I, I think it's early days. I guess from someone who outside of of that work, I would want to understand. Yeah, how comprehensive is it? Is it going to mm. when you're we've got real playtesters, the things that they don't understand or the things that they can't do are often based on what's going on in their heads or like their mental model of the world and the extent to which an AI can replicate why someone failed to notice that that door was the right way to go or why they didn't spot that there was a ladder over there i'm i'm not sure about yet but i know there's definitely thinking and work being done in that area and so i imagine in five years time yeah perhaps there'll be no more playtesting it will be all be ai (laughs) area sad thought um and and i mean there's already like sentiment analysis i guess you know to to run on on text so you can see if it's positive or negative so yeah but, but you're right the, the key piece there is that why and and why people are actually doing that so maybe the the ai could tell that all these people have failed the task but um yeah not understand contextually with how they were playing why that that is the case very interesting because the train of thought i was thinking with that was like I think it's just because I've been writing course outlines for a website course. Um, you know, websites have flash huge errors at the developer if um, text isn't readable or stuff like that. And then Costa mentioning Unreal Engine before makes me go, there's nothing inside of Unreal Engine that goes, that ledge is too close to that ledge warning or like that's not going to work. You know, there's not even like an overlay mode to even allow that kind of thing. I, I think that sounds fantastic. Um, you should You should make this. You could do accessibility as well, couldn't you? Like, like for example, tech, you could say, hey, people aren't, this isn't legible, people aren't going to see this, people aren't, yeah. The contrast is too low between this and and this thing, so people aren't going to notice it. Um, Yeah, I think it's a great topic. Yeah, and and I mean, that's something like if, you know, in in design, like wireframes and that kind of stuff, you can use tools, and even on web, like there's tools like uh, Stark where you can measure the contrast between the, you know, the the foreground text and the background to understand if it meets, you know, the um, WCAG, you know, the accessibility guidelines. But yeah, there isn't, I haven't seen anything for games that, that does that without having to manually go through and check these different things. So yeah, very interesting. Yeah, good area. Yeah, um, we always like to kind of end and wrap our episode with just asking our guests um, what's a key piece of advice that you could give to someone who is uh, looking to either become a games user researcher or embed uh, your start to do some user research, you know, if they're an indie developer, let's say. Yeah, good good question. Um, I guess this advice on my mind because it came up over the last week Sometimes people ask, hey, how much do I need to know before I get started? Or, you know, how much reading do I need to do before I get going? Um, ultimately, the first couple of times you do this, it's going to go wrong. It's going to, to be bad. Um, you might get the wrong type of players. You might ask silly questions that are leading. You might not notice the big conclusions. But that's okay. You need to burn through the, those first couple of goes as long as you're getting some sort of feedback like you're showing your work to someone who has done a user research study before or you're doing some sort of mentoring where people can feedback on it. 
at least you're cre- creating opportunities to recognise what went wrong, understand why that went wrong, and then take steps to, to improve it. And I think whether you are a, a student practising a usability review for the first time, or you are a game studio trying to run your first playtest, I think just having it, like being brave and giving it a go is, is really important. And then asking for some feedback, reflecting your process, changing your process. From that, you can build a reliable and, and it very quickly gets to high quality playtesting as long as you just go through it as an iterative process. Um, so yeah, start, start early, start now, I guess, is my advice. Yeah, that's, that's awesome advice. And, and where, can, where can people find you online? Yes, yeah, so a lot of my writing about games user research is on gamesuserresearch.com. There's every month there's a, a free email lesson where we share some playtesting advice or approach on how to write surveys, how to do usability tests. Um, so signing up to the email newsletter is is sensible. And then from there, there's also links to things like the playtest kit or the book or all the things we talked about. So yeah, gamesuserresearch.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Steve. Thank you for inviting me, Steve. I've enjoyed the chat very much.